listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Our Old Testament reading comes from Exodus 12:21 through 28. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door or your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over the doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike, down, and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Our New Testament reading comes from John 1, 29 through 42. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then God gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thank you. In just a minute, uh, after we receive communion and we share the benediction, we're going to put together care bags for folks experiencing homelessness. And it feels like there are more and more of them. We've been talking about this in recent months. Uh, and we want to be, we want to multiply mercy in our city. And so I'm going to do what some people say cannot be done, which is preach slightly shorter than normal. And I believe that I can do it with God's help. Newton's third law of motion can be paraphrased for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And you maybe have seen the YouTube videos of the professor who's got a string, you know, 
fastened onto the ceiling and a weight at the end of it, and he starts it at the end of his nose, and he releases, and the pendulum swings the opposite direction, and it come back, comes back, looks like it's going to smack him in the face, and it just gives him a gentle little kiss on the nose. For every action, there is an equal and an opposite reaction. This we know to be true. However, it is also true that we do not always know what and where the reaction to our action is going to be. And this introduces the law of unintended consequences. So I don't know if this story is true. It's apocryphal. I hope that it's true because it's really funny. But uh, during colonial rule in India, the story goes that the British were very concerned with the, the presence of this huge population of cobras, which were a deadly venomous snake. And so they did something that seemed like a brilliant move, where they offered a cash reward to anybody who would bring in a dead cobra. Well, this worked at first. A lot of cobras were being killed off until some entrepreneurially-minded snake lovers decided to start breeding cobras only to kill them and bring them back to the government for a reward. Well, the British catch on to the plan, they cancel the program, and unfortunately, in the end, there were more cobras than there had been in the beginning. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, and the law of unintended consequences teaches us that we cannot always discern what and where the reaction to our action is going to be. Now, it could be argued that an equal and opposite reaction to the overreach and the overassertion of authority by both the church and the state in the 17th century was the rise and the sovereignty and the centrality and the reign of the individual. For so, so long, authority structures and institutions told people how to think and what to believe. And now in these great revolutions, these consequential revolutions, people were throwing off the chains of slavery to the institutions that told them what and how to think, and they began to think for themselves and put themselves at the center of the universe. No longer must we accept these archaic ideas like the divine right of kings or remain unchallenged, embrace unchallenged the interpretations of the scriptures by the church. The notion of discovering or defining one's own truth, even one's own facts, an idea that was laughable to prior generations became deeply venerated and esteemed and protected and taken to be self-evident as an inalienable right. That same subversive spirit, that same anti-authoritarian, don't tell me what to think or what to do spirit that gave birth to these United States also fomented the sexual revolution of the 1960s and was even consequential within the church, giving rise to language familiar to anyone who grew up in American evangelicalism, the idea of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, each of these revolutions, the American Revolution, the sexual revolution, the personal relationship revolution, copyright John Odom 2023, each of these were not without merit. Some of them brought a very significant correction to the status quo. I happen to be of the mindset that taxation without representation is a bad idea. I agree that saying men belong in the workplace and women belong at home is unnecessarily stifling and inadequately reflective of the image-bearing potential of men and women. 
And I happen to agree that if one has a relationship with the church, but that relationship with the church never leads to a, what you could call a personal relationship with the Lord, personal conversion, knowing Jesus, that is an issue. But as with any revolutionary movement, there can be overcorrection, and often the truth is found somewhere lurking in the middle. Here's the big idea that I'd like to share with you today. The call of Jesus is to follow him. That's a call that you and I as individuals must ultimately respond to. The call of Jesus is to follow him, but that call creates a community. That call creates a community. This is one of the, the key emphases of the season of Epiphany. The, the, the leading characters in the story of God in Epiphany are the Magi, foreign astrologers. They represent the Gentiles who, with the people of Israel, are becoming God's new family through faith in Jesus. Uh, Epiphany is telling the story of how in Jesus, God is bringing together people of all nations in socioeconomic classes and both genders and Jews and Gentiles to form one new family. The call of Jesus is to follow him and that call creates a community among those who respond. Think about the texts that we've read so far today in Exodus. Uh, the people of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 or so years, and it was the Passover event, being delivered from slavery in Egypt and passing through the waters of the Red Sea that really forged their identity as a new community. They passed through the waters from slavery into new life in the promised land. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing a new community of believers. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, he says, This is to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. doesn't say called to be his holy person or a bunch of individuals. No, y'all together are called or sanctified, are called to be God's holy people. But it's not just you, Corinthians together with all of those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, lest they think they've got a niche, you know, Christian market there in Corinth. He says, no, what God is doing in you, sanctifying you as a new family for himself, you're linked up with his family everywhere for those who call on the name of the Lord our God. Jesus Christ is their Lord and ours, so grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The people in the church of Corinth had been a multi-ethnic community passing through the waters of baptism into a new life in Christ as a new family. In John's gospel, Jesus begins to call disciples. He's baptizing them with the Holy Spirit. That's what John the Baptist says is the mission of his ministry. And as Jesus calls people to follow, that call creates and constitutes a community. In that community, you have zealot and you have tax collector. You have fishermen and you have financiers. You have men and women, a community of apprentices to Jesus. The call of Jesus is to follow him. That call creates a community, but as many in this room can testify, that community is complicated. Everybody say amen to that. Find a relationship with church to be a little bit complicated. They go back to Exodus. God delivers them with a strong arm and a mighty hand. They pass through the Red Sea on dry ground. 
15 minutes later, they're worshiping calves at the foot of Mount Sinai. For 40 years, they're bickering in the wilderness, wondering, like, shouldn't we go back to Egypt? Wasn't that a little bit better? Jesus calls his disciples, and and perennially they squabble, they fight. After years with Jesus, they're bickering together about, I wonder which one of us is actually the greatest. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He speaks to them so eloquently. They're sanctified. They're saints, and yet the rest of the letter is dealing with problems in that church. They are divided about which preacher they like the most. They are divided over what constitutes sin. They are divided about abuses at the Lord's table, confusion about spiritual gifts. If you're going to be idealistic about the church, or if you're going to cite the Bible to say, I just wish the church could be like it was in the Bible, you only have Acts 2 to go on in terms of being idealistic because the rest of it is just pockmarked with conflict. The rest of the New Testament church is arguing. (laughs) Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a little book. Of course, he wrote, um, oh my goodness, uh, The Cost of Discipleship. But he also wrote a little book on Christian community um, called Life Together. And in the book, he warns against those people who have an idealistic, rose-colored interpretation of what church is meant to be like. And he really doesn't pull any punches. Bonhoeffer says, God hates visionary dreaming. When it comes to thinking about, oh, we're going to have the best church. We're going to finally get it right. Bonhoeffer says that spirit, God is not about it. Why? Well, it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The one who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds them all together. And when things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. What a great phrase. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. Eugene Peterson, who translated the message, who's written a lot about pastoral ministry, said, a congregation is not a glamorous place. And we handle that realization differently. Jean Vanier, who's Never read a single book of his, to be clear. I sound fancy by saying his name. I've just come across his quotes. (laughs) He profiles the three phases of community life. And understanding these phases can help us temper our own expectations. One of those, the phase one is called idealism. Uh, I can imagine there are people who've come to our church in recent months, or maybe you even helped start the church, and you're like, this is a great church. It's going to be amazing, and the people are amazing, and the worship is amazing, and everything is amazing. And they were in the church for nine minutes until they got into phase two, which was conflict. And conflict is where you realize, oh, everything is not amazing. 
You have misaligned expectations. You have miscommunications. You get hurt feelings. Sometimes stuff just happens that disappoints you. Now, a lot of times, people are in churches, local churches, long enough just to realize that it's not a phase one community. And the second they hit phase two, they're like, welp, I'm either done or I'll go try another one. Uh, By the way, This is a lot like marriage (laughs) or any friendships. You enter into it having high hopes, and you discover, oh, this is a human being. This is a person that I'm in relationship with, and they're just as jacked up as I am. (laughs) You have that idealistic vision of this person or this community, and when conflict makes you question those ideals, It can cause you to cut and run, or it can lead you into the third phase of rich life for a Christian community, and that's realism and commitment. Realism is appreciating that these are neither angels nor demons with whom I am worshiping. These are people. And together, we're learning to follow Jesus, and yes, it's complicated. Having that kind of sobriety and realism can lead to commitment, and that commitment can lead to our flourishing. The call of Jesus is to follow him. That call creates a community, and yes, that community is complicated, but that community is the context of our salvation. Salvation was never intended to be a Jesus and me thing. It was also meant to be a Jesus and we phenomenon. St. Cyprian in the 4th century said, No one can have God for his father who does not have the church as his mother. Now, many people, rightly appreciating the complexity of the church, enter a new church community with some reluctance. And some here may be reluctant or new to our church. You've perhaps been hurt by church in the past, on staff at churches in the past, and to be in a church building, in a church service on a Sunday morning is itself a miracle. In the Lord's timing, I believe it will be best for you to inch toward Christian community and easing back into the life of the church. But I will say for all of us that I believe the movement toward Christian maturity over time requires relational proximity to other believers. At the very least, I think it requires geographical proximity that like we're all ending up in the same space in a week. We're at least physically together, but I believe we must be relationally and emotionally proximate to other believers. I am the dish doer in our house. Emily does lots and lots and lots and lots. I contribute the dishes every night. And uh, I'm pretty good. I don't want to brag, but I'm pretty good. And I've really refined my methodology over the years, and I have found that uh, using water alone and just holding the dishes there, is, that's amateur game. You're not going to get a clean dish that way. I believe in those steel scrubbers first introduced to me at my in-law's house and find them to be very effective in cleaning pots and pans, and I commend them to you. <laughs> There's a great new product that you can... No, um, <laughs> there's something about the tension... It's having something to scrape, something that's of contrast with the texture of the thing that you're trying to clean that makes it effective. And similarly, in our relationships with one another, we actually need the tension. 
We actually need the contrast between what feels pleasant and what's unpleasant. In our life with God, we need other people to bring that tension that comes from physical and relational closeness with other believers. If you only ever have a personal relationship with the Lord that doesn't lead to a communal relationship with other believers, you may survive in your life with God, but I think you're going to be anemic. We need to be close enough to other believers to hurt each other. We need to be close enough to have conflict with each other. Close enough to have to say from time to time, I screwed up and I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? And also close enough to earn the right to say, I love you and they know that those words have weight. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you are a branch that is not in proximity to other branches, you may ask yourself if you're actually connected to the vine. The church in Acts, for all of its warts, did model for us a shape of life together. They prayed together. They ate meals together. They served the poor together. They argued together. They gave their money to a common fund together, and they worshiped together. And that gives us the blueprints the initial blueprints for how we ought to live together as Christian community. One church father said in the first couple of centuries, here's a basic rule. Be together as much as possible. So it should be with us. The call of Jesus is to follow him. That call creates a community. And yes, that community is complicated, but that community is the context of our salvation. I want you to consider before we receive communion... If everyone did church, if everyone engaged with the church, the body of Christ, like you do, would we be healthier or sicker as a community? Are you caring for and investing in or ignoring and possibly polluting the body of Christ? Just like each of us have this responsibility to care for our bodies, our bodies are a gift from the Lord. Our bodies are responsive to efforts to change and grow healthier. So the local church, so the body of Christ is responsive to efforts. And it's the delight of the Lord to support the flourishing of the body of Christ. Are you caring for or ignoring the body? Are there ways in which you need to be increasingly aware of who the body of Christ is all around the world, maybe even through history, learning more of our family story. And as you think about this year, 2023, how do you sense the Holy Spirit inviting you to move toward other believers in Christian community? Maybe this year in greater measure, what you need to do is to budget for conflict or to budget for miscommunications or misunderstanding or disappointed ideals and also budget for an increase in commitment. We're actually going to lean into it. One of the best things that we can do together as a community is to receive Holy Communion because there's a, there's a breathing in and a breathing out as we come to the table. We're, we're breathing out and we're laying down our failures. We're confessing our sins. We should regularly confess our sins as we come to the table. Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, don't go up to the altar. Leave your gift and go and be reconciled to them. At the table, we have the opportunity that we should make the most of to be reconciled to one another and say, hey, 
it was stupid, it was my fault, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And also at the table, we're given the gift of pardon. How God and Jesus Christ extends his forgiveness, his compassion to us, gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit to nourish and equip us to do the work of ministry, to live together as Christian community. So we come, may the Holy Spirit be poured out on us today. May the Spirit be manifest in the bread and wine and nourish us so that we can live together as the body of Christ. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for ideals that blind us from reality and for all kinds of excuses that bar us from relationship with one another. I pray for those people in the room who have very deep hurts and disappointments that makes it difficult for them to try again, and I ask that you'd give them the grace to be open and wise, and that you give those of us who might be considered insiders to this church community the grace and the wisdom to truly see and welcome one another. Make us, Lord Jesus, more fully uh, your faithful church. This we ask in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.